Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, amen and amen, man. So glad that you guys are here. And so really, we have to ask ourselves this question this morning. So what's really up with the focus on Israel? (laughs) Really, why does Israel even matter? What's so important about Israel? I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Jewish nation is the only nation whose origin can be traced with total accuracy. No one knows who the first Englishman was, who the first Swede was, or who the first German was, or who even the first Chinese person was, but the entire world knows that Abraham was the first Hebrew. Frederick the Great of Prussia was a staunch Lutheran in the old Prussian tradition. He was a very religious man, but the, he began to read after Voltaire, the French writer and skeptic, and he began to have doubts about his faith. He's being tormented by doubt, and he called in one of his court chaplains, and he said, hey, listen, just forget your philosophy, forget your theology, give me some firm proof that there is a God and that the Bible is the word of God. The court chaplain simply said, the Jew, sire, the Jew. As one preacher says, every Jew on the face of the earth is a literal miracle. If you ever begin to doubt that God is alive and well and even on his throne, just look at Israel. No other nation and no other people is as relevant to the child of God today as the nation of Israel and the people called the Jews. You see, during this past election year, there was much talk about the candidate's stance on Israel. Why? Why is Israel so important? I mean, why do we have to be a nation who chooses to stand with Israel? What is really the big deal? I mean, why is there so much attention in the entire world on Israel? in this series called Biblical Wisdom for Cultural Concerns, and this morning we come to the subject of Israel. I want us to truly understand why Israel is so important and why we should continually be concerned with Israel. I kind of have to let you know up at the front, this, of course, is where Pastor Steve goes into teaching pastor mode instead of preaching pastor mode, and you'll notice the difference. We have a lot to cover, and I'm so excited to teach you about Israel because I believe it'll be a tremendous blessing to you. So we're going to move very fast, and we're also going to try to be as thorough as we possibly can. You see, if you looked at Israel from one perspective, let's just say its population or even its natural resources, Israel would not seem very significant. As of November 2018, there are a little less than eight and a half million people living in Israel. That's similar to the state of Virginia or New Jersey. Its land mass is 8,019 square miles, which is roughly the size of New Jersey. Yet, this little place is the center of world attention. Why? I mean, it's not a big place and it doesn't have many natural resources. Even though it's located in the very oil-rich place of the Middle East, Israel is not known for its natural resources. Still places in Israel like the Golan Heights or the Gaza Strip or the West Bank are listed by National Geographic as one of the top six most disputed territories in the world. Why would this be? 
I'll not find the reason why Israel is important by watching CNN or Fox, I can promise you. I will not find the importance of Israel by reading articles or even listening to podcasts. Listen to me. The reason Israel is so important and the only place we'll really find that is found in the word of God. See, God has a plan of Israel, and the truth is, is everything else revolves around Israel. So we're going to see this morning God's plan for Israel and why it's important. And in the timeline of history and in the scope of biblical prophecy, it's been said that Israel is God's yardstick. It's Israel that's God's measuring rod, God's blueprint, and God's program. Friend, in all the cities of the world to keep your eye on, it is not Rome, it is not London, it is not even Las Vegas or Washington, D.C. The place and the city to keep your eyes on is Jerusalem. So let's begin and let's stand and read the verse that established the nation of Israel. If you'll stand to your feet, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there would be a Bible there somewhere in the seats under the chairs. If you don't have a copy, please take that one home. It's our gift to you. You can also take out your hard copy. Church, I'm going to always continue to encourage you to bring a hard copy of God's Word to church with you. But today, you can look on the screen. Here is what God says in his word about the birth of the nation of Israel. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you what church? A great nation. And I will do what? Bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Read verse three with me. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So teaching pastor Steve jumps out of the, the, the block today and he says this. First thing I want you to understand is Israel is important because of God's flourishing promise. Israel is important because of God's flourishing promise. The first part of what we read is a promise that God would make a a nation of Abram. God made great promises to Abram, which means his name there, Abram, means exalted father. Later, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Not only would he be an exalted father, but now Abraham means he would be the father of nations. God called Abram Abraham because he would make them the father of of a multitude of nations. God promised Abraham that he would take him to a new land, make him a great man, that his descendants would become a great nation, that God would bless those who bless this nation and God would surely curse those who curse this nation. And then God said he promised to bless all the families in the entire earth through him. You may know this, but we sing this sometimes. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, right? So let's see, listen, God's word is so true. God's word is so true. Then in Genesis 13, God expands on his promise. He tells Abraham to look down on the ground. In Genesis 13, 16, God says this, I will make your descendants as plentiful as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be counted. But then God says, hey, listen, man, it's not just as much as that. I want you to look up to the sky, Abraham. 
Genesis 15, 5, we read these words. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be, so shall your offspring be. Now God gave these comparisons so Abraham could see that what seemed impossible, God would do. God would take his descendants and make them a great nation. This is impossible for Abraham. You know why? Because he and his wife, Sarah, are very old. One problem. Another problem is they have no children. Big problem. But because God is faithful and powerful, he keeps his promises to do even the impossible. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had two sons, one of whom was named Jacob. Then at a crucial time in his life, God changed Jacob's name to what, church? Israel. Israel was Jacob, and he had 12 sons, and those sons became the 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes make up the nation of Israel. You see, God keeps his promises. You see, through Abraham and Israel, God has blessed the entire world. It was through Abraham that the prophets came. It was through Abraham that the writers of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, are Jewish books, friends. Through Abraham came Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. God keeps his promises and God's blessings have fallen on those who bless Israel. But you better believe it that God's judgments have fallen on those who have cursed her. We see that from ancient Egypt, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Romans to the Spaniards to the Germans and the Russians, God takes care of those who mess with his people. God promised to make a nation from Abraham and God promised Abraham a land, but he promised that land permanently. The Bible says in Genesis 15, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. You see, this isn't about heaven. This is not about a spiritual promised land. It is a literal, literal place. It's distinct geographical place. And God describes its boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. God even tells us who would be living in that land when he says in Genesis 15, continuing in verse 19. He said this would be the land of the Kenite, the Kenazite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. You see, those names meant something to Abraham and he understood who they were. But nevertheless, it did not matter because that land was the land that God was given to Israel forever. If you map it out, it's much larger than what even Israel occupies today. It's even larger than the land they possessed in Old Testament times. The promised land includes modern Israel, plus Lebanon, plus the West Bank of Jordan, plus large parts of Syria, Iraq, and even Saudi Arabia. Now turn to Genesis 17, because we have to understand that God's promise to Abraham and his descendants is unconditional. In other words, there's nothing Israel can do to disinherit their land. This promise is an everlasting, unconditional, never-ending promise. In Genesis chapter 17, the Bible says this in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land where you live as a stranger, 
all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Beloved, you have to understand that the promised land is an eternal possession for God's people. But you have to also understand that God was clear from the very beginning that even though God had promised to give them that land, they would not stay in that land. They would be taken out of that land numerous times. And at the outset, the people of God would be displaced from that land even though God had promised them. We see in Genesis 15, 13, God tells Abraham, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. God tells them up at the very beginning, you're gonna be displaced from your land. The first time we find that is the first of three times we find in the scripture. The first time is, is found in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, this is the departure for the people of God from their land during the time of Joseph. Jacob and his sons left Canaan and went to Egypt to survive a famine. While in Egypt, they grew from a family of 70 to a nation of two to three million people. They were enslaved in Egypt, but God miraculously brought them out under the leadership of Moses through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of disobedience. But then under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed the Jordan and went back to the land. That's the first time we see you would be displaced, but that land is yours. You will be brought back. Secondly, we see some centuries later at the end of the age of the kings, under King David and King Solomon, Israel controlled most of the land that God had promised Abraham. And although King Solomon was a wise man, he made some very foolish decisions. He was a godly man, but yet he chose to go in an ungodly direction. The Bible says he was the wisest man alive, but yet he also made one of the most unwise decisions in all of his life. Toward the end of his life, King Solomon married pagan women from the surrounding cultures and raised those children to worship idols instead of the true God of Israel. And because of that ungodliness, the kingdom of Israel began to disintegrate. It divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And in 721 BC, the Assyrians came to the northern kingdom and they took 10 tribes of the northern kingdom into captivity. A century later, in the summer of 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed in 586 BC. And the kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity. Once again, the people were displaced, but God would bring them back. Here is where we find another of those texts, just like we looked at when we preached through Philippians, that is often put on Christian wear for Christians to claim and to proclaim. And I'm telling you, it is not what the Bible teaches. Here it is, Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says, for this is what the Lord says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, Israel, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Beloved, let me tell you something today. That is not a promise for the church. That is not. We, we can't apply that promise to ourselves. It's not given to us. Context is always king when interpreting the scripture. If we're going to claim verse 11 as believers, we've got to claim verse 10 as well. So then what is this? This is a address to Israel and her captivity that God would be faithful to bring Israel back to her land. 
And after 70 years in Babylon, just as God promised, the people of God returned to the land. You read about it in a book in your Bible called Ezra. Ezra tells us how 50,000 people returned to the promised land, rebuilt the temple in 516 BC, and they lived there until the time of Jesus. This is, there's one more removal. There's one more return that we'll talk about in a minute. What I want you to see is that Israel is significant, important, and primary because of God's flourishing promise to Israel. We see these promises. God promises to make a great nation of Abraham's descendants. God promised to give Israel the land of Canaan, a very specific place. God promised to bless those who would bless her and to curse those who curse her. God promised to bless all the earth through Israel, culminating in the coming of Christ. God proved faithful to keep his promises even when Israel was unfaithful. You're saying, well, that's cool. What does that mean for me? Well, be encouraged that God's faithfulness is greater than even our unfaithfulness as believers. Even when you and I wander from God, he is faithful and will always bring us back to himself. He did it over and over for Israel, and my God can do it for you today, amen? He is faithful, even to the point that their sin had taken them out of the land. God went to great lengths to bring them back. And praise God, even when our sin takes us out of the presence of God, Jesus comes and can bring us back, amen? Church, be aware that Israel is important because of God's flourishing promise. Will you say, will you have more? Well, praise God, I do. Here's number two. Israel is important because of God's fortified protection. It's important because of God's fortified protection. Your Bible and my Bible tells us that the God of Israel, the one true only living God, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to fulfill his promise to Israel. The word of God is clear that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to deliver his people. But you have to realize that 20 years before Christ was born, Rome was occupying Israel. And on behalf of Israel, under the leadership of Herod, he was reconstructing the temple in Jerusalem that had been built in 516 BC. The temple construction process was underway when Jesus was born, and it was still unfinished at his death. Even unfinished, the new temple was amazing. The stones were huge. The architecture was breathtaking. The amount of gold they used in the temple was almost blinding. The disciples, when they saw it, were deeply impressed. So we find them saying these words in Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going on his way when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Jesus, look at this place. Isn't it amazing? Then Jesus says these words in Matthew 24, too. But Jesus responded and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you that not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. I mean, Jesus here prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. Why? Because the people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And the temple was destroyed. Remember that I told you there would be three times we would see this, where God would displace his people but bring them back. For the third time, they were taken from their land. A few years after Jesus' resurrection in AD 70, the Roman soldiers surrounded Jerusalem and they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of worshipers. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, 2, the temple was destroyed. 
The stones of that great temple were pried apart one by one until not one was left on top of another, and they threw them into a valley southeast of the city. The Jews were driven from their land for a third time all over the earth. And from all outward appearances, it looked like the people of Israel would not be able to return to the land that God gave them. History tells us that Rome took over Jerusalem. They built it as a pagan city. And in the 8th century, Arabs took possession of it. In the 12th century, Christian crusaders, listen to me, whom I know did atrocious, false things in the name of Jesus. They overtook that region of Jerusalem for a short time. But then in 1187 AD, the Muslim leader Saladin defeated the crusaders. In 1517, the Ottoman Turks took over and they had control of the promised land until Turkey was defeated in World War I. In 1917, General Allenby of Great Britain conquered Jerusalem and the British occupation of the land began. Then, around the end of the 19th century and beginning in the 20th century, something known as the Zionist movement began to happen. Jewish people from Central and Eastern Europe began to migrate back to Israel. They came back and did so from much opposition from many parts of the world. It seemed impossible that they would ever rule and control a land and even have a sovereign state. But then God did what only God can do. Just as God did for Joseph, the son of Jacob, back in Genesis, God took an unspeakable evil and used it for good. During World War II, millions of Jews died under Nazi tyranny. Jewish people often refer to the Holocaust as the Shoah. It's a Hebrew word meaning catastrophe. Germany and German-controlled hands rushed Jews to concentration camps and exterminated them. Of the 9 million Jews living in German-controlled places, over two-thirds of them were murdered by the Nazis. After World War II, there was worldwide sympathy for the suffering of the Jewish people. God took something evil, and he used it for good. Because on May 14, 1948, with the crucial, crucial backing of the United States, For the first time in centuries, Israel became an independent nation. God brought his people back to the land a third time. But listen to me, instantly Israel was attacked from every side. They were attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and thousands fell in battle. By the time a truce was arranged on July 7th, 1949, Israel had unbelievably conquered. They had taken the little land and expanded their area from 5,000 miles to over 8,000 miles. Then in June of 1967, Israel's Arab neighbors rose up with the same goal as, as the one in 1948. They wanted to annihilate the Jewish state and push the Jews into the sea. Israel was vastly outnumbered and overpowered. But in the six days war from June 5th to June 10th, Israel fought and not only defended their land, but extended their land to Sinai in the north, to Golan House in, in the north and, and Sinai in the south. And most of the biblical Samaria and Judea that you and I know because God gave them victory. For the first time in more than 2,500 years, Jerusalem was under control of the children of Israel. For the third time in history and under great odds, God brought his people back to the land as he had promised because Abraham and his descendants, they own that land. Why? Because of God's fortified protection of Israel. 
So why do we need to stand with Israel? Because God has promised to bless those who bless and he's promised to curse those who curse. Did you know that right now, Israel is surrounded by 26 predominantly Muslim nations, many of them who are extremely hostile to Israel. And some think that the conflict in the Middle East is, is really hard to explain. It is relatively simple, my friends. It is simple to explain. Dennis Prager, who's a Jewish American, writes in one of his books and he says this, one side wants the other side dead. Israel wants to exist as a Jewish state and live in peace. Israel recognizes the rights of Palestinians to have their own state and to live in peace. Most Palestinians and many other Muslims and Arabs do not recognize the right of the Jewish state and Israel to even exist. He says, if tomorrow, if tomorrow Israel lay down its arms and Israel announced we will fight no more, what would happen? He says, if the Arabs announced to Israel, they said, hey, we'll lay down our arms and say, we'll fight no more, what would happen? Prager says, in the first case, if, if the Arabs said they would lay down their weapons? No, if Israel said they would lay down their weapons, if Israel said that, the Arabs would annihilate them. But if the Arabs were to truly mean it and say, we'll lay down our weapons, there would be immediate peace. That's where we're at today. God has acted miraculously on behalf of the Jewish people. He has fortified his protection of the people, even though they've suffered greatly. He's been faithful to them even as they rejected Jesus. He's brought them back in the midst of great hatred and opposition. But here's the question. Does God have something better for Israel nationally than what we see right now? Does God have something better spiritually than what we see right now for the Jewish people? Paul says yes. Paul, who's a Jewish man, says this. After he came to know Jesus as his Savior, his heart burned for his fellow Israelites to know Jesus. We see these words in Romans 11. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? Far from it. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Which leads me to the third thing. And that is this, that Israel is important because of God's future prophecy. Israel is important because of God's future prophecy. I want you to see this picture. See, you can go to Israel, you can stand on the Mount of Olives, and you can look back at Jerusalem, and you can see the great city. From there, you can see the eastern gate of the city, which was walled up by Muslims 500 years ago. The Bible promises and prophesies that the Messiah Jesus is going to enter that city through that gate. This Jesus of Nazareth came the first time to die on a cross. He's coming back to reign on a throne and he's going through that gate. As we look at the picture, we can see what Jesus saw as he recites these words in Matthew 23. The words of Jesus about his sorrow that Israel had rejected him and his promise to come again. In Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How I often wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, you're going to see me again. Now that's yet to be fulfilled. But has God brought them back? Yes. And while Israel has been restored as a nation, some of Israel's promises remain to be fulfilled. But listen to me, they're not good promises. The most dramatic are still ahead. You see, Jeremiah promises an intense time of pain for Israel. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Woe, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, yet he will be saved from it. Suffer, yes, but delivered, yes. Jeremiah 23, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them and will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer or be terrified. Not any will be missing, declares the Lord. Has that been fulfilled? No, but they will not be fearful and dismayed and none of them will be missing because God has said so through his prophecies. The promise is coming. Jeremiah 23 goes on, behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Has a king like that come? No. A day of distress, tribulation and pain is coming and it will come under the the, the, this evil world ruler. He's called the beast in Daniel and Revelation. He's called the Antichrist in 1 John. And this evil leader, this leader will, will, will lull Israel with a false peace. But then he will abuse and oppress Israel like never before in history. But then during that time, God will save Israel. He will send the righteous prince and Israel will turn and say what Jesus said they would, they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a glorious future in store through prophecy for Israel. Ezekiel 39, 28 says this, then they will know that I am their Lord because I made them go into exile among the nations. And then I gather them again to their own land and I will leave none of them any longer. You see, as Israel turns to Jesus, God will bring all the Jews to their land for a final time, never to be scattered anymore. Israel will endure a final and great time of trouble. No one will be able to wipe them off this planet. They will be delivered by Jesus. Israel as a whole will turn to Jesus, their Messiah. God will gather all of Israel and put them back in the promised land and Jesus will reign over them. The new Jerusalem will be an eternal place for the redeemed of all ages. In Revelation 21, it talks about this. In verse 10, he says, and he carried me in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper and had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. For all eternity, the names of the 12 tribes will be inscribed in the new Jerusalem. 
But beloved, it gets even better because verse 13 says, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, the redeemed of all ages from Israel to the church will be with Jesus forever in the new Jerusalem because that's what he's prophesied. Israel is important. It's important because of this future prophecy, but I leave you with this. Israel is important because of God's forever plan. Israel is important because of God's forever plan. God's plan is that Israel would reach the nations and tell the world about who he is. The most important thing about Israel is what they reveal to us about God. God chose them to reveal essential things about himself. Isaiah 42, 6 says it this way. I am the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. Watch this. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. The forever plan is that Israel are God's chosen people to be his light to the nations and reveal his heart. Early on, we see as they were entering the promised land, God said in Deuteronomy chapter seven, beginning in verse six, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. The Lord did not make you his beloved nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples since you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandment. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to eliminate them. He will not hesitate toward him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You see, the Bible tells us that God chose Israel to reveal to the whole world his mercy, his grace, his power, his righteousness, his judgment, his love, and his faithfulness. God's character revealed in his relationship with Israel is the same character that he has in relationship with the believers in the church. Listen to me. You have to understand this. The church has not replaced Israel. God has a forever plan for them. So Israel, it really matters. Why is it important? Because of God's flourishing promise, his fortified protection, his future prophecy, and a forever plan. Listen to me. If you have stopped and checked out, it's okay. Come back. You can go home and listen to this again if you need some sleep music. Listen to me. Listen to me. Very carefully. You have to get this. Please understand this. Hear this pastor's heart beating out of my chest. You have to understand this. Here it comes. The church has not replaced Israel, but the church must embrace Israel. The church has to embrace Israel. We have to. We have a Jewish Bible, friends. We serve a Jewish Messiah. We are his people redeemed by Jesus the Messiah. We share in Israel's history. We have a stake in Israel's destiny, so that's why we have to stand with Israel. But do you know this? That in history and in the Bible, we see that Satan is the Antichrist. Satan is anti-Jesus, he's anti-Jew, and he's anti-anything Israel. 
So when you see anything against Israel or the Jews, you can automatically rest assured it's from the pit of hell. We should love Israel and the Jews because we love Jesus and they are his people. But praise God, we've been grafted in somehow. God's people, rest assured, God's people will never be destroyed. God's promise to his people cannot be denied. And God's purpose for his people will never be defeated. So what are some applications here? How are we then to bless Israel? How do we bless Israel? Romans eleven eleven tells us, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? Far from it. But by their wrongdoing, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. You see that you and I can love and bless Israel by making Israel jealous, by loving the Lord our God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We can love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and know Jesus as the Messiah. You see, you and I live in what is known as the church age. This is not a time to oppose Israel, but to make them jealous and desirous of having a living relationship with their Messiah and ours. What's another way to bless Israel? Well, Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says this. This is another verse that gets taken so out of context. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who first? And then to the Greek. See, we're to look for opportunities to share the message of Jesus with Jewish people. We live in an ecumenical society that says, hey, we don't want to offend anybody, so we're going to let you believe what you believe. You let us believe what we believe. No, we have to tell everybody that Jesus is the only one to believe. We can't just say, well, we just let the Jews be the Jews. No, we have to tell them that their Messiah has come. Paul says, this is the power of God and we should start. And listen to me, it's only through relationship with Jesus that any person, much less a Jew, can spend eternity with God. Paul was so serious about his passion for the Jews and of the gospel that he said in Romans chapter nine, he said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen. What Paul is saying is that his heart is that he'd be willing to lose his salvation and go to hell if only his people could know Jesus. Well, I have to tell you, I'm not there. Now, listen, I love y'all. And I'm not bragging. I'm telling you, I wish God worked on my heart, but I'm telling you, I don't know that I'm willing to give up my salvation so that some of you could know I'm just not there yet. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to tell you that's my, I, I don't think I can make that claim. But that's what Paul, I want my heart to get there. I want my heart to have a passion that beats for lost people, especially for Jewish people. How about you? I want to have a passion in my soul that can relate to what he's saying. How else can we bless Israel? We can do what we did this morning in Psalm 122, 6 through 7. We can pray for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. Now, before you get crazy, this doesn't mean that Israel can do whatever it pleases. We just pray for them and God will give them a pass. The Old Testament has some of the strongest words of judgment for Israel. The Old Testament has some of the strongest words for Israel when they reject God, when they mistreat people, or when they pervert justice. So praying for their peace and warfare doesn't mean that they can do no wrong. What's another way to bless Israel? And I end with this. 
You just show Jewish people that their best friends on earth are those who follow Jesus. You show them that the best friends they have on earth are the people who follow Jesus. I wonder if my band would come. Attorney Jay Seculo, some of you may know him. He was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Long Island. He grew up in a Reformed Jewish secular home, and as an older teenager, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia. After graduating high school, he went to Atlanta Baptist College because it was close to his house. He asked his Jewish dad about whether he could go to that Baptist school when his dad said, I don't care, I just need you to go to school. Atlanta Baptist College is now known as Mercer University. Jay said that he went to the school and that he wanted to do pre-law studies and outsmart all the Christians at the school. At the school, he had to take Old Testament and New Testament, so he was certain that he could take classes and disprove that Jesus was this Messiah. While there, he met a man named Glenn Borders. Glenn was a Jesus freak, and he took his faith seriously, even wore this big, huge wooden cross around his neck. But what Jay come to find out is, is that he was just a regular guy. He was there to help Jay and just be his friend. And through his friendship, Jay's competitive edge to prove Christians wrong turned into curiosity. Glenn challenged Jay to read Isaiah 53. Jay Secular says he read it, and he was impressed deeply in his heart that that could only be talking about Jesus. But Jay said since it was a King James Bible, it was a Christian Bible, so he needed to read it in the Jewish Bible. He said he came to read Isaiah 53 in his Jewish Bible, and he came to the same conclusion, that that had to be about Jesus. This suffering servant could be none other than Jesus. In the February of 1976, there was a singing group called Jews for Jesus, and they came to the campus. The name of the group was Liberated Wailing Wall. Now, that's a 70s name for you. They were singing about their faith in the Messiah. He said that they sang a song at the end that said, those words we read, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, for it is the power of God to salvation first for the Jew. And Jay said that they invited everyone who wanted to follow Jesus to come forward. So in that day, in February 1976, Jay Sekulow committed his life to Jesus the Messiah and has been following ever since. But here's my question. What was his starting point? His starting point was a friend who knew Jesus. Beloved, can I just tell you today that we have to befriend all people, but especially the Jews. We have to find ways to stand with Israel. We have to. And as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we're going to be pro-Israel. And we're going to move anything and everyone in any direction to support the Jews in any way that we possibly can. But you see, let me ask you this question. Does God have a plan for Israel? You better believe it. Does God have a plan for every single Jew? Yeah, it's called the gospel. But you know what? God has a plan for you. And wouldn't it be a shame to talk about how the Jews need their Messiah and leave you without knowing that you need him as well? See, there's an amazing thing that the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, none, not even one in this room, not even Steve Brown was righteous before I knew Christ. The Bible says that because we've sinned, we're separated from God and 
And just like God promised to, to do things to Israel, God's also promised that because we've sinned, we spend forever separated from him. But the Bible also says that God so loved us that he sent Jesus to die, to, to pay our penalty, to be buried in our grave, and to raise from the dead to give us life. And the Bible says these words, that if anyone would confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wages of sin, which is death. God's promises are true. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't know that Jesus today and you want to make him your Messiah, today's a really good day. I wonder today if you just stand to your feet. We're going to say a prayer. We're going to sing a song. If you need Jesus as your Messiah, you can come down and pray with one of us. You can turn to some people there in the aisle beside you and pray with them. Maybe today you have a deeper love and appreciation for the nation of Israel. Maybe you want to intercede. I don't really know what, Lord, maybe you just have a different prayer request. You want to talk about things going on in your world. We're going to be down here. There's going to be some men and and some others that will be down here at the front. But I wonder, would you pray with us? And then let's sing. Jesus, all I can say is, is I'm thankful that your word is true. And I'm thankful that one day, we get to reign and rule with you and all your people. So bless your people, God. Bless your people. And bless those that are in this room. Speak now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.